This is NegotiateX Podcast, show number 36, part A. You're listening to NegotiateX Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me today is Aram, my co-host and co-founder, but more importantly, not that you aren't important, Aram, but more importantly, we have Gary Nessner joining us today. So I'll turn it right over to you, Aram, to introduce today's guest. Thanks, Nolan. Today, folks, we have Gary Nessner, the retired chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit. During a 30-year career, in which uh, significant focus was directed toward investigating Middle East hijackings in which American citizens were victimized. Gary spent 23 of those years as a hostage negotiator. He was heavily involved in numerous crisis incidents covering prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. Following his retirement from the FBI, he became a senior vice president with Control Risks, an international risk consultancy, assisting clients in managing overseas kidnap incidents. In 2010, Gary wrote and published Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, which discusses his FBI negotiation career. The 2018 Paramount Network TV event, Waco, is based in part on his book. Gary has appeared in numerous television documentaries and has been interviewed in Time, Forbes, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, New York Times, and many other media outlets. Now, in 2011, dating ourselves, Gary, Gary was a guest of mine at West Point. He made a tremendous impression on the cadets there, both with his stories and his ability to bring relevance to the topic of negotiation. And Gary, I wanted, as I get ready to introduce you, I wanted to share this picture with everyone of the two of us 11 years ago. I'm not sure who's aged more, <laughs> um, but boy, those were two good looking guys back then. Yeah, there were certainly younger guys, that's for sure. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, uh, listen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you both, Nolan and Aram. And coming up to West Point was a great honor for me. I, I certainly hold the academies and those who serve the country in, in high regard. My my son uh, mentioned it in my book, you might have seen, was a Navy SEAL. And you know, so all that stuff is close to my heart. So it was really, I was quite pleased to see that the military academy was devoting time and energy to teaching these communication skills to our future military leaders. You know, it's, there's a similarity in law enforcement. We spend an awful lot of time on firearms training, for example, and it's necessary, it's appropriate, I don't criticize it. But in comparison to communication skills that you would use virtually nonstop in your career, we tend to spend relatively little time. You know, it's really a key for, for a, a law enforcement officer to learn how to deal with the public and gain their cooperation and avoid conflict. And 
These are important skills. Not everybody's good at it. Most people can improve their capabilities, but it takes a bit of work and dedication. I, I'm sure I was far better at it much later in my career than I was early in my career. <laughs> I can say the same thing. And, and yeah. I also throw in on the humorous level, none of this stuff works at home, so don't even try it there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, shoot, there goes one of our last yeah, questions. Well, we, we're going to talk. We, we can gonna... take a run at it, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to overpromise there. <laughs> well, Gary, before we get started, I just thank you for that. And thank you for your service, too. You know, you coming up to West Point was the start of a long term relationship now that the West Point Negotiation Project has been able to maintain with the FBI's hostage negotiation unit there. And it's, you know, with training and, and guests and everything. So you were a big part of that and cadets continue to be impacted because of, because of your work. So thanks. Thank you too. You're welcome. Gary, I just wish you were a year sooner so that I could have met you and gotten an opportunity to go to the FBI crisis negotiation unit before I had graduated, but that's all right. I guess we can't have, we'll everything. have to make up for that now. Yeah. So. <laughs> Perfect. Well, <laughs> as we kick this podcast off, Gary, the first question we kind of like to ask our guests is where did you start to become a negotiator, both personally, professionally in your life? And what was kind of the key aspects to your development as a negotiator early on? Yeah, pretty broad question. You know, there was no negotiations uh, in law enforcement when I joined the FBI. I wanted to be an FBI agent since I was probably six years old from, from watching a television show. And it just something about the job intrigued me. I wanted to do something challenging, interesting, prestigious, I wanted to make a difference. I didn't want an ordinary, less challenging career, you know, different strokes for different folks. But this is kind of what drew me. And then when I got in the FBI, there was this new and emerging discipline called hostage negotiations. And I have to give credit to the NYPD that created this, uh, this program. And they created it for reasons that we, we find pretty common in law enforcement. We don't make changes because somebody has a brilliant idea and we think we should look at it, we make changes because we get criticized for performance, either in the court of public opinion or in the court of law. Uh, and that's always been the motivating change. It's probably to some extent true with the military as well. So New York came up with this concept and, and the FBI recognized it very quickly as a really good idea. And because we are a nationally based organization and international to some extent, then much more so today, we were able to really devote a lot of time and effort and energy to researching this in a, at a deeper level, to expanding the curriculum, to have a better understanding of human behavior in crisis. And slowly it evolved in, into this crisis negotiation program. And, you know, I got involved in it. I'm on first generation. I, my training was in 1980, and it started probably in the, in the FBI 76, 77, something like that. So I would say I'm second generation. But one of the big sea changes that occurred when I became a full-time negotiator in 1990 was, and I was heavily involved in this, is is the realization that most of what law enforcement were doing were not really pure hostage situations that entail quid pro quo bargaining, like in a kidnap or a hijacking or something, but rather emotionally driven situations with no clear goal, with a perpetrator holding a wife, a girlfriend, a, a, you know, an employer that they're feuding with, a, a neighbor they're having a problem with, whatever it might be. And people get involved in these situations based on their lack of self-control and um, you know, a manifestation of an explosive anger. And so they're not really there to bargain. I'll give you a ham sandwich if you let your wife go. I mean, it doesn't work that way. So 
we, right. we had to really copy quite heavily from the mental health community, the counseling community, and use what we call active listening skills. And they're, they're widely understood and, and embraced throughout the counseling community and, and increasingly in law enforcement. When I introduced this into our curriculum, I think for the first time in a major way in 1990, I'd go around the country and probably at the various negotiation conferences, no, no cop knew what I was talking about. Now it's the bread and butter of negotiation. If you don't know active listening skills, you're simply not a negotiator because that's how we create a relationship of trust. We're not looking for a long-term friendship. We're looking to diffuse, de-escalate, to project sincerity and, genera- and, and genuineness. I'm here to help you. I don't want to see you get hurt, you know, and I don't want to see anybody in there get hurt. And we've learned when we do that, rather than using that confrontational law enforcement command voice, you better do this or we're going to come out and get you, you know, the old Sergeant Friday kind of thing, that we accrue (laughs) much better results because people will become self-destructive and do things against their own best interests. And we have to be careful that we steer them away from that. And it takes a little bit of time. You know, that's why I named my book Stalling for Time, because time is is a key element. We're not purposely trying to elongate the situation, but we know that the passage of time tends to lower the emotional content and brings people to a point where they're a little bit more reasonable. What suggestion you made three hours ago, which was rejected, might now seem more reasonable after the person's tired and hungry and frustrated and has maybe burned off some of their adrenaline, whatever it is. So that's the basic concept. Then we realize that those skill sets, and by the way, 90% of what law enforcement does is in this emotional spectrum, expressive incidents. But we found it also works in more traditional hostage situations because you know, my view is everything in life is is about relationship, everything. I, I guess if you live in a lighthouse out in the coast of Maine or something like that, you don't have to worry about, <laughs> even they have to communicate with somebody. But but most of us uh, at home work, uh, recreationally, we as human beings are tribal animals and we rely on cooperation. And that all stems from creating a good, positive relationship. And when that's missing, there's problems. And when it exists, we overcome problems. You know, so that's the key feature. And if we can find ways to help negotiators in a short, compressed period of time, typically, to build those relationships of trust, then we stand a very high uh, likelihood of achieving success. So, Gary, in your book, you talk about kind of the FBI's path to developing negotiation as a critical skill for for the agents in the organization. You also just mentioned, you know, some of these public perception and, and opinion events that kind of drove. Can you share a little bit about those incidents that you talk about in the book that were the impetus for creating the crisis negotiation unit that you eventually would lead? Well, New York had a, uh, what really prompted them to start looking into this was a, a famous robbery uh, at a sporting goods store and a police officer was killed and it, it was a mess. Different police officials were trying to negotiate and it was disorganized and they decided to create the emergency services unit. And it became quite a successful entity and a negotiation team. And with the FBI, it was the dog day afternoon bank robbery, which was also in conjunction with NYPD. And we had a case in Jacksonville, Florida, a small airplane where the FBI conducted pretty poor negotiations and shot out the tires and the hijacker ended up killing the two victims and himself. And, you know, we began to say, hey, we, we, we have to develop something better than just demanding people surrender and being confrontational. 
you know, and there was a court case. And uh, like most things, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when there's scrutiny of what you've done and questions asked about why you did it this way, it becomes hard to defend. You know, in law enforcement, we have long embraced this philosophy that oftentimes we don't listen to, to tell you the truth. And that is, we use no more force than is absolutely necessary. And of course, these topics are very, very upfront these days with the use of police force and so forth. And I think we have to think when we take an action, we have to say, is this necessary now? Do we have to take this escalated physical action now? Or is it more prudent to engage a little further and to try to defuse? There was a police department that that I trained many years ago in Florida that made a very bizarre decision that they decided they were going to train every single person on this mid-sized police department in negotiation skills. The next year, their SWAT callouts reduced 75%, 75%. Now, what does that tell you? Instead of officers coming up surrounding the house and you know presenting a threat to this person, which some, I'm not saying that's not necessary sometimes. We have to keep the situation from spreading further, endangering other lives. But instead, you get, instead of Captain so-and-so saying, you better come out, now you got, hey, I'm, I'm Gary with the police department. And what, can you tell me what's going on in there? We're concerned about you. You know, you really stand a chance of resolving it peacefully. And what is most important and what some of my fellow law enforcement officers continue to this day to forget, we negotiate not because of the victims and not because of the perpetrator. We negotiate to keep police officers alive. That's the only reason we do it. It's a damn good reason. No matter what happened in this house, we're not God. We didn't create this escalated domestic situation. We haven't shot somebody or threatening to kill somebody. But while we're here, we're going to do our best to resolve it peacefully. But to do that, to throw, needlessly to throw officers in harm's way is not the smartest way to do it. I think we have to be able to articulate to a court of law and a court of public opinion. All right, you went in this house and you ended up shooting and killing this guy. Right. Why? What compelled you to do so? What are the facts and circumstances? What did he say? What did he do? How did you gauge that the threat had increased? Because you've been there six hours. What was different from hour four to hour six when you went in? You know, and if you can't, and I've been at seen many times where I've told chiefs and sheriffs and special agents in charge, if we can't make that argument, we ought to think very carefully about what we do. You know, sometimes... We call it the action, not sometimes, we often call it the the action imperative. There is, uh, law enforcement's paramilitary, just like we're action-oriented people. See a problem, fix a problem, move on to the next problem. So when when some less than satisfactory citizen is misbehaving, it pisses us off sometimes. You know, maybe you didn't understand. I told you to come out, you know, and I don't have time for this crap and you better come out or we're going to come in and get you becomes sort of a, a wrestling match of egos. And, you know, the bottom line is, hey, we've got innocent lives in there. What What's the rush? What's the cost? I mean, you look at the, you know, some of the big tragedies like Waco, where I was involved, you know, when, you know, that, that has a, a perpetual black mark on the FBI, because there, there are some that question whether the FBI should have gone in at the end or not. And, you know, you've got to think about those things. You don't do it just because, well, we've been here 51 days, and we're tired, and we're angry. That doesn't cut it. You know, you better be able to articulate for these 17 reasons. He said this, he did that. We've got to make a case. And and I always told negotiators, when the boss at the scene says to you, you're the chief negotiator, how's it going? The wrong answer is, oh, it's going good or not so good. No, no. This is time to pull out your notes and from the team for these reasons, 
this is how we feel, support. <laughs> and we created at Waco, which is widely used now in law enforcement, a thing called position papers, where we put on paper for the on-scene commander. Here's our assessment of the situation. Here's our, our recommendations on what we do about it. And it forces the negotiation team to put their thoughts on paper, and then it allows the on-scene commander and anybody back in, say, Washington that has to review that paperwork to fully understand what the negotiation team is assessing and analyzing and, you know, it makes the boss stop and think because a lot of bosses are really good at being bosses in a general sense. But are they good at this? I mean, you, you could pull out from the army, you could get the head finance officer for the entire army and you put him in, uh, you put him in Ukraine and say, now move the troops around and fight the battle. Well, it's not his element. It's right. not his expertise. No fault of his own. He's not been prepared for that or trained for that or experienced in that. So that happens with us sometimes because someone's a field general in the FBI. There is an assumption or in police departments that they know how to do all these things. And when right. in reality, they normally don't. <laughs> That's right. why they have to look to somebody like me and say, share with me your experience and knowledge. They're still the ultimate decision maker, but they're really foolish if they don't pay attention to those people uh, under their control that have real expertise in these things. It's great. And Gary, your, your comment there on the position paper and, and being able to give an art, you know, a well-articulated and thought out assessment that can then inform up. It's really interesting. So just, just this week working with, with students where I teach, we talk about being able to articulate what is occurring in success beyond just saying, Oh, it's going good. Right. That's, yeah, that's not enough. And, and I created years ago, Nolan may remember this at, at West Point, I created this character called Major Hard Ask, who would ask the hard questions. And of course, there's a fun little play on the sound of that too. So now I use it as Professor Hard Ask, who still comes in and asks the sort of questions that you're talking about on that position paper. And as a leader, you have to, you have to listen to these people. I mean, you can't get an analysis paralysis, but, but you do have to create an atmosphere that encourages people to provide an alternate opinion. So those, the other thing about those position papers I would throw, they're one page. The whole thing's on one page. Because you know why? What? Well, I'll tell you how it evolved. Out at Waco, as the negotiation team leader, I would go in and report to the on-scene commander. Here's what we're thinking. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we recommend. He would call up the phone and talk to the deputy assistant director, who would then brief the assistant director, who would then brief the deputy director who would brief the director who would brief the White House. And by the time up it got up there, you know, the parlor game, it was completely distorted <laughs> and inaccurate. So I said, the only way we can really deal with that effectively is send them a short, because at that level, they don't have time to read a book. You know, you send them a short, concise, here's the situation, one paragraph. Here's our assessment of it, one paragraph. Final paragraph, here's our recommendation then he can just fax that up to headquarters and somebody say, okay, now I know how the negotiators look at this. And it also is a bit of a control over an untrained commander too, because I remember in Waco, the commander said, you know, you're painting me in a corner with that paper. And of course, I said, oh boss, I would never mean to do that. <laughs> of course, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Because out there, we, we suffered from some bad decision-making. I mean, well-intended, but nonetheless bad. And information is everything. You know, who's getting the critical information they need to make the decisions? And, and, and within any organization, you know, I travel around the world teaching negotiations and police officers basically say, we're going to do whatever you say. You know, they, they almost depend too much on you. But in the FBI, it's like, well, you're three ranks down from this guy. So what could you possibly know? 
maybe if you look at the things I've done, you might see that I have something to help you with here. But it's just the nature of bureaucracies. If you're a lieutenant, you're going to have a hard time briefing the general, <laughs> just the way it is. And your lieutenant may be the smartest guy on the particular issue, the most knowledgeable and experienced. So yeah, bureaucracies have to find ways, I think, to tap into that skill set and to make sure we're leveraging it for the common good. And I think that this is all so important, Gary, because you're really talking about the internal stakeholder struggle. And I know that you highlight in your book that negotiators sometimes, especially in the FBI specifically, it's not necessarily dealing with the perpetrator. That's the hardest part. It's dealing with your commanders above you. So is there any other tips to on how you manage your internal stakeholders in a negotiation? Well, it's very difficult. We call it the crisis within a crisis. You know, while each situation is different, and I think this came up in one of the earlier comments or questions, there's a general pattern. I mean, we, we know how to deal with emotionally distraught people, with depressed people. In a general way, we walk into the situation knowing nothing, but once we find out what we're dealing with, we have a general strategy that we're probably going to follow fairly closely. If it's a, it's a disgruntled veteran, if it's a, a mentally disturbed individual, or if it's somebody with very substantive, substantive demands. You know, so we have kind of different, different strategies for that. But we, we've got to be able to get this understanding. Um, I'll, I'll give you a clear example. During the St. Martinsville prison riot, I was back up at Quantico at this particular time, and one of my negotiators called me up, the head negotiator who worked for me down there, and he said, hey, one of the bosses wants to go tactical and conduct a rescue. And I said, what the hell changed since I talked to you two hours ago? He said, well, the hostages said, if we come in, they'll kill somebody. So he says, they're going to kill somebody. And that's where we, I invented on the spot this uh, thing we call, there's different kind of threats. That's a defensive threat. When somebody says to you, if you come in here, I'll kill a hostage, what are they really saying? What they're really saying is, I'm scared of you coming in here. Please don't come in here. And they're not going to take the action as long as you don't precipitate the violence. That's all that is. But to an untrained ear, a decision maker who doesn't have the exposure to these incidents and case studies and philosophies, they're going to kill hostage. That's all he hears. It's tough. You have to think. It's like if you had a, a hijacking and the, the hijackers, you know, take a customer to a passenger to the to the doorway and shoot them. You know, the old school of thought was once they shoot one, we got to go in. Well, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. You know, I'm not devaluing the life of that hostage, but is that going to help or hurt the safety of the other hostages at that time? You have to weigh a number of circumstances. Do we have the resources there? Do we have a plan? You know, what's the probability of success? Are there acceptable casualties, which Maybe in law enforcement, there are none in, I mean, in military, but not in law enforcement. So there's a number of factors and it requires nimble, creative thinking. And I find that, you know, we don't always have that. And um, you know where this really comes into play, and I'm sure you've seen it in this context, two situations absolutely identical, but one now is a Middle East guy and somebody says he's a terrorist. Everything changes. Everything changes. There are no other substantive differences in terms of what he's done, what he wants, but just that word alone. Now we have multiple layers of different agencies and what what philosophies do they come in with? How well trained are they? They've got to interface with our people and, and not only there at the scene, but back at their headquarters and the communications that happen there. 
going back to your point, Aaron, it becomes tremendously complicated. I used to tell my negotiators in Waco, I said, you know, what you're doing is easy. You're dealing with David Koresh. We know what David Koresh is about. He's a manipulative narcissist. Okay. I got to deal with some FBI bosses who, frankly, are an enormous challenge and probably my biggest impediment to getting this thing resolved peacefully. I hate to say that about my outfit, but that's the way it is. So, Gary, let me just be, we're going to go, would love to dig into the model in just a moment, but I did want to ask you one more question. I mean, you have such great insights into organizational change and, and how an organization, you know, kind of started to grow with these skills and some of the growing pains that occurred. And that, that comes up in stalling for time, you know, and I think that's something that organizations, regardless of industry, military, certainly and business and government, as you talked about, kind of bureaucracies can learn from. Just can you talk a little bit more to just what those growing pains were? It wasn't immediate adoption, right? I mean, it wasn't just, oh, suddenly we wake up and now we're expert negotiators and it's a corporate capability. It's something everybody FBI gets. It was a process. You've talked about kind of getting senior leaders on board. You certainly spent a lot of time training. Are there other components to making negotiation something that kind of lives within the organization. Well, in both the FBI and New York and LA and other major police departments, tactical capabilities preceded by some years the concepts of negotiations. You know, and the thinking was we have to have this specially trained group of people to handle high-risk situations. And I don't argue against that whatsoever. I, I think that's absolutely appropriate. But you need that other piece to go with it. And, and if you don't have that, then you failed and you have to coordinate. I'll give you a simple example that happens all the time. We're in a tenement building and a guy's holding some hostages and the negotiators make an agreement. If we put some food in a box outside the door, he'll let a child go. Easy decision to make. Costs us almost nothing. If that's not well coordinated, the SWAT guys who get the box of food, number one, there's cases where they've ate it, but number two is we don't like putting it that close to the door. So we're going to put it down the hallway, make that son of a bitch come out and get it. Well, what do you think that son of a bitch is going to say when he comes out and says, that box is not where you said it was going to be? You're trying to set me up. A simple little thing like that, the whole relationship, the whole cooperative engagement that you've invested time in is now to some extent flushed down the toilet. Now he thinks you're merely part of a plan to draw him out so he can be killed. And it's little things like that that unintentionally the program. That's what I always used to say. I, you know, I'm sending one of my negotiators out to brief the tactical team that's going to do this. Make sure they understand the ramifications of it. Now, I shouldn't be making that deal until I've already talked to them and found out what are you comfortable doing. That goes on my shoulders and, and my team should do that. But once we have that, then we've got to make sure it gets implemented. Back at Waco, when after a couple of weeks when adults started to come out versus the children that had come out earlier... We had to talk to the tactical folks. Be careful in the way you treat them. Number one, the people inside the compound are watching. But number two, everybody that comes out, we have them call back in and praise how well they were handled. So if you allow your frustrations to throw them down on the ground too hard, to put the cuffs on unnecessarily tight, to rough them up, that may help you feel better about your frustrations, but it's counterproductive to our goals. And for the most part, they were very good about doing that. But we can't assume people people know that. You have to be really clear on that. And, you know, it's just, 
It's the same thing in military. You're, you're negotiating with some village in Iraq, you know, and you've got a good relationship with the chief elder, and then somebody else that's got to implement part of that program has a whole different perspective on how it should go, and it can ruin the entire relationship. Yeah, it's interesting because we talk. We'll talk a lot about doing things that feel good as a negotiator. Do something reactively. It makes me feel good. Highly ineffective with what I'm trying to yeah. achieve. Yeah, no, abs absolutely. And, you know, negotiators have to watch it too. You know, when I, I've listened to some yeah. tapes from some situations I was involved in before, and I'll hear one of the negotiators manifest a little bit of peak, you know, and say, you know, huh, you know, you ain't this and you ain't that. And it's, it's no, 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 that's not, that's not our job. And, and as human beings, we fall into that. And I'm sure I've made my share of mistakes through the years too, but we've got to be very, very careful. Again, and I think it goes back to a question you started to get into earlier. I think as an organization, we have to set out a clear philosophical goal. What are we trying to accomplish when we respond to these situations? What, what is our goal? Keep ourselves alive, try to save innocent life, try to do it in a manner that the community respects us as a competent entity that is not just out to harm people. All of these equities are involved. We want the case to stand up in court and you know so forth and so on. We don't innocent parties to get harmed. So if that's our goal, then what's the best way to implement that? And, you know, it's it's the the parallel approach. Yeah, we do prepare to use the tactical team. We, we are always prepared for an emergency assault or if the decision is made, even a dedicated assault. But at the same time, we are on a parallel fashion working the negotiation angle and trying to, up to the last minute, get it resolved through peaceful dialogue. Tactical action does not mean negotiation failure. And that's one thing that's always bothered me to justify to the public why we took tactical action. Police chiefs, sheriffs, and special agents have sometimes said, well, negotiations failed. And it just burns my butt because I said, negotiations failed. Didn't we get you three days to assemble resources, get a floor plan, practice your drill, get a hostage release to tell us what's going on, find out more background about this person? I don't think we failed at all. What failed was the perpetrator failed to make the right decision and prompted us in a compelling, articulable way that we had to go in. Anything short of that, you know, just isn't going to cut it. But it always has bothered me when we say, oh, negotiations fail. I'm a firm belief that negotiations never fail. If you look at what the real intent is, it's to slow it down, buy time. And, you know, when someone's talking to me on the phone, they're not beating a hostage. They're not running around the house, looking out the windows to see where the snipers are setting up and potentially endanger them. So there's so many great benefits to what we call verbal containment. And, and it's often underappreciated and underutilized. Great insight there, Gary. Really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. I'm going to have to put an end to our conversation on today's episode. Be sure to join us next week as we finish this conversation with Gary Nessner. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.